Thank you all for leading us in worship. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me. We're going to start in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. So if you have if you have your Bible, open to Ezekiel 36. We'll start there, and then we're going to spend most of our time in John chapter 3. So Ezekiel chapter 36. And would you pray with me one more time? Heavenly Father, I pray for these next few minutes as we discuss what genuine conversion to Christianity is, what the new birth is, and what the gospel is. God, I pray for students in this room who may not yet know you savingly. They may know of you more than they actually truly know you. I pray right now, God, that you would do what none of us can do on our own. That you would move with the wind of your spirit and that you would create life where there maybe at this moment is not spiritual life. That you would open eyes that are blind to the beauty and the glory of Jesus. That you would open hearts to the message of Christ and that you would not just let it land with its truthfulness, but with its beauty and glory and power. God, I'm sure there are so many needs in this room amongst everyone here. Needs that I mostly don't know about and I'm not aware of. And so God, I pray in these minutes that you would use your word, which does not return void. That you would use your word by the power of your spirit to expose sin. Grant repentance. To give us the faith to believe, to truly trust you. And to give us a joy in Christ that goes beyond anything else in this world. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a real privilege for me to be able to speak here to you guys at Sharp Top. And I want to speak, you know, I think about what exactly to talk about or how exactly to approach a message like this. And what is just at the center of my heart, what just the thing that I absolutely cannot get away from and don't care really to get away from, is the idea of biblical conversion. What exactly does it really mean to become a genuine Christian, a genuine follower of Christ? So the beginning of this message is going to be challenging, I think. It may be unsettling for for some of us. And then I think at the end, Lord willing, there will be a lot of encouragement and hope uh, in in the gospel. So look with me. This is an Old Testament text looking forward to the era in which we, we live, the New Covenant era. Look at Ezekiel 36, and I will start in verse 25. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 25. This is God's promise of what he will do. In the time of the Messiah. Ezekiel 36 verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Skip ahead here to chapter 37 just briefly. You may remember the story here. Ezekiel is told to go out and look at a valley of dry bones. Just dead bones. No life there. And God says, can these bones live? Ezekiel gives the answer that we shall give, which is, Lord, you know, because I don't know what's about to happen. And the Lord says, prophesy. Speak my word over these dry bones. And Ezekiel probably thought, this is going to be a waste of time. What am I doing speaking to a graveyard? And he begins to prophesy. And then the word of God is coming out of Ezekiel's mouth, the prophet. 
And he's preaching in essentially a cemetery. And what could possibly happen now? And as he begins to prophesy, let's look what happens. Verse 7. Ezekiel 37, verse 7. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them. And skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied. He's speaking God's word. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, what's not obvious in our English Bible is that there's a word play going on in this passage. The word play is that the same original word for breath is the same original word for spirit. It's also the same word for, so wind, breath, and spirit was the same word in the original language. So there's a play on words here. As the wind is breathed on these bones, who's at work? It's God's spirit, right? God, God's spirit is at work. Now, what, is this, what do these two strange texts have to do with us today here at Sharp Top? Well, God is promising that when you become a believer, when you become a Christian, what actually happens is God does a heart transplant. He takes out the old heart. And he puts in a new heart. And he does this by the power of his spirit. While we are spiritually dead like the bones on the ground, we might be physically alive. We can have the time of our life. We're having fun. We're out doing things. We're enjoying ourselves. But spiritually, we may be dead like the dry bones. And what has to happen is God by his spirit has to blow by the wind of his spirit on us in our spiritually dead state to bring life. And when he does, he takes out our spiritually dead heart and he puts in a heart of flesh. A heart that's alive by his spirit. And he cleanses us with with pure water. That is, spiritually, he cleanses us of our sins. Now, what exactly does it mean to get a new heart? Uh, Go ahead and turn with me to John, the very end of John chapter 2. This is where we'll spend most of our time. The end of John chapter 2 into John chapter 3. What does it mean to get a new heart? For God to take out the old heart and to put in a new heart. Well, what it means is in in the Bible, you know what the heart is. The heart is not simply how you feel about things, like your emotions, although that is part of your heart. In the Bible, you know what heart is, right? Heart is really the center of who you are. Uh, It's the center of all your loves and longings, your fears, what you hate, what you deeply desire, what you believe deep down. That is at the center of your heart. It's sort of the control center for the human being. That's why the Bible says to guard your heart, for from it issues the springs of life. Your whole life flows out of what you value, what you care about, what you love, what you are passionate about, what you dislike. Those are all the things that are at the center of your heart. And God says, listen, guess who needs a new heart upon birth in this world? Everybody. Everybody needs a new heart. There is no one who is naturally good enough, moral enough, religious enough, or secular enough, or whatever it may be your standard. No one on their own is good enough in order to earn their way to God or to create their own heart. God must do this work. So let's, let's examine a conversation Jesus had. You probably know this passage well. With Nicodemus, a religious leader of his day. And we're familiar maybe with Nicodemus. Let's look how the story starts back at the end of chapter 2. John chapter 2, look at the last few verses, starting in verse 23. So John 2, 23. 
Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, just stop there. So we're told, if you read the rest, or first part of the chapter, Jesus goes into Jerusalem. Lots of people are there. And he, remember, he gets out the whip and he cleanses the temple. And he does a number of miracles. We don't get the details of exactly what all he did. But he does miracles in Jerusalem. And there are thousands and tens of thousands of people there. And many people see him do these signs, these wonders, these miracles. And you know what they do? They say, I believe in this guy. I believe in Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth guy, I I believe in him. He's doing things that only God could do. Clearly, he's got to be something like a Messiah figure, something along those lines. I trust in Jesus. I believe in him. And if you're Jesus, you're thinking Jesus is going to turn around and say, this is great. Like, thank you guys. This is wonderful that you're you're trusting in me. This is good. Well, it's surprising what happens. Let me reread verse 23 again. John 2, 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part, do you see this? Did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. Now, again, let me mention the original language. In the original language, one Greek word is used two different times in this passage. Same Greek word, the word for trust or belief. It says many trusted Jesus and the exact same word is used in the next sentence. Jesus did not trust them. He did not entrust himself to them. Exact same Greek word. They trusted him. He did not entrust himself to them. That's puzzling. What what is this describing? What does that mean? You have a large group of people who see Jesus do miracles, believe that he is in some way the Messiah or from God, and they believe in him. And Jesus says, I don't entrust myself to you. What's going on here? And what we're seeing is something called false or dead faith, which is a theme that runs through the New Testament. You, you guys, some of you have had to memorize parts of James before. And if you know James chapter 2, some of you I think may have memorized James chapter 2 in the last year. Uh, James chapter 2 says, listen, uh, faith without works is dead. If, if you claim to have a faith in Christ and it does not actually transform your life from the heart to your actions, then James would say, it's not genuine saving faith. Now, this is where I want to kind of drill down for a second and talk about this for a moment. I know I share my story all the time. I'm not going to go into a lot, a lot of detail on my testimony. I share it a lot. But I will say this. I had what, what people call dead faith during most of my time at Westminster. So, again, I, you know this. I started here in kindergarten. I graduated uh, from high school here. But from kindergarten, from age five all the way through 10th grade, if you would have asked me, who is Jesus? I would have said, no question. He's a son of God. Savior of the world, he's the Messiah. If you would have said, do you believe in the triune God? Yes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you believe in hell? Yes, I believe there's a hell. Do you believe in heaven? Yes. Do you believe Jesus came and died on the cross for sinners? I would have said, absolutely, I believe that's true. You would have said, do you believe in Jesus? I would say, of course I believe in Jesus. I mean, yeah, I I do. I've prayed to receive Christ. I'm a baptized member of a church. I absolutely, I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. For sure I do. Now, if you would have stopped right there, I sound like a Christian probably. But I am absolutely sure, looking back at my life, that I was not actually a believer. And so here's the, the burden that I have for, for you guys and for – it was true in my own life. We need to know what genuine saving faith is and what false and dead faith is. Now, let's, let's just stop for a second. You, you do understand how important this issue is, right? Eternity is a reality. 
Like, Scripture is true. God is real. There's coming a day where we will leave this world and we will meet God face to face. That day is, is coming. If I do not have genuine saving faith, if you do not have genuine saving faith, if you have a kind of false faith like I had for 10 years of my life, then when you stand before God, he will not say, well done, good and faithful servant. The Lord will give you or he would have given me exactly what your sins and my sins deserve. Now, this is the bad news of the gospel. This is the bad news. God is holy and we are not. We have sinned against God in more ways than we can possibly understand, more than we think. And if God were to treat us as our sins deserve, we would go to the eternal fire prepared originally for the devil and his angels, Jesus said. So understanding what true faith is uh, is the most important thing you can imagine because everything hinges on whether or not we have genuine saving faith. So here's what genuine saving faith looks like. It goes beyond a mental catalog of information. You, you do understand in James 2, he says, you believe that there's only one God? Well, you're doing really well because even the demons believe that there's only one God and they tremble. Do you, do you understand what James is saying? It's one thing to have information in my head that I assent to as true. My guess is in this room, I'm sure not everyone in this room would say that they're a Christian, although my guess is most of the people in this room would say I'm a Christian. I've prayed to receive Christ. I am a, I'm a believer. I, I think I'm, I'm a genuine Christian. And here, here's what I would say. How do I know that my faith is not the ascent of a demon that says, I know God is real. I know there's one God. I know Jesus died on the cross for sinners. I know all that is true. But my heart has not yet been transformed. There is no delight in God. The Bible is fundamentally boring. Jesus is fundamentally not someone I'm particularly enthusiastic about. I can talk to him sometimes. I can read his Bible if I force myself to here and there. But when it comes down to it, I'm passionate about a hundred things in my life. And if I'm being honest, I know I should say Jesus is at the top of the list or near the top of the list. If I'm being honest, I'm passionate about 50 things before I even start thinking about Jesus in my actual affections, in my actual desires deep down. So how do I know where exactly I stand with the Lord? There's a younger uh, girl in our church, Hannah Hughes, and she's great. She started coming to our church as a college freshman, and this was her story. She grew up in the church. Her dad's a pastor. She knew all the right answers. She had prayed to receive Christ. She's baptized part of her dad's church. She comes to Athens. She's attending our church. And after a number of months, she's in a small group, and she starts seeing people in her small group who have a real, genuine hunger for Scripture. And she's not really used to this amongst 19, 25-year-olds. And she sees them. They, they really love the Bible. They, they love the Lord. And she's seeing this in the way that they talk. She can see it on their face that they have a real love for the Lord. And she's going, I, don't, I know all the answers. I don't think I have what these other people in my small group have. I, I don't think I And so she said in her testimony, she shared it with us. She said, I started getting in, insecure. I thought, I, I don't really know where I'm at with the Lord. Time starts going by, and she starts wondering. She said she was at her grandmother's house. I thought this was a great illustration. She said, my grandmother would pick flowers, and she put them in a little, uh, a little vase or something in the, in the room, and, and these beautiful, lovely little flowers. And then, you know, eventually the flowers would start to die. And so she said her grandmother would replace the real flowers as they died with the fake plastic flowers. You know, and sometimes you can't quite tell from a distance which is the real flower and which one's the plastic flower. You almost have to get up close sometimes to tell. And she said, I started realizing my faith in Jesus was a lot like that plastic flower. It was not actually connected to the root. 
I didn't actually have the life of Christ in me. The love for Jesus was not there. The the hatred of sin wasn't really there. I mean, yeah, I felt bad when I did embarrassing things. I felt bad when I did really bad things. But I didn't have a love or delight in Jesus or security in Christ. And she said, I started realizing my faith was like the plastic flower. It, It had no root system. It wasn't connected to anything. It was just sort of sitting there mimicking the real flowers around it in the vase. And so then she went under this time of conviction of sin. For the first time in her life. She started having a sense of the weight of her own sin. Now, if we're not just giving Sunday school answers, I, I want to ask you sincerely. Have you had times in your life, not just a, a feeling of guilt that kind of goes away after a while. Have you really had a sense, personally, that you yourself deserve God's judgment for the sins that you've committed? Not just, could you write that on a little Bible quiz? We all know that, yes, we deserve God's judgment. That's the right answer. But have you had a sense of that? That I No, seriously, I actually deserve God's judgment for my sin. Well, Hannah goes through this period where for a number of months, she started to realize that she doesn't, she doesn't think she knows the Lord. And she's afraid. And she doesn't know what to do. So what she does is exactly what I would recommend anyone to do in this room if, you're in a, if you find yourself in a similar state. What she did was she said... I didn't just pray like a, a sinner's prayer. I, I, can, I can kind of beat up on the sinner's prayer. I, I, let me explain what I mean and what I don't mean. Because I am for sinners praying. But let me explain what I mean here. There is a, you know, something that became popular about 150 years ago. So for the first 1850 years of church history, the way we think of the sinner's prayer and asking Jesus in your heart wasn't really a thing that people did. I mean, you can look back. That wasn't really, it's a newly invented part of church history. But let me give a criticism of that method. Because what often happens, and what happened to me, was I was five, I can still remember where I was. I walked out of church on a Sunday. I was walking on a sidewalk, sidewalk by myself. I said, Jesus, I have sinned. Please come into my heart and forgive my sin. And then I started, are you ready for this? I started jumping up and down. Five-year-old me. I even drew a picture of it, which was a work of art when I was six. I drew a little, you, you should, I wish I could find it. You would be amazed at the artistry. Not really. Okay, there's a little picture of me jumping up and down. And I, I, that was my conversion. That's what I told people was my, was my conversion. So what, what do you do if, if you've prayed that prayer, but fundamentally the desires of the heart have not changed? I'm not talking, okay, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking, I've heard this said like this. It's not perfection, becoming a Christian. It's a change of affection that leads to a change in direction. Okay, so it's not perfection. No one is walking in perfection in this room. No one is. No one in this room is perfect. But it is a change of affection, a change of our deepest desires and longings that then begins to show itself in a change of the direction of our life. It's receiving a new nature. Okay? I mean, you think about it like this to give a silly illustration. Cats have a clean nature, right? You can make a cat dirty. You can get a cat dirty. Maybe you have a cat at your house. When the cat gets dirty, it's only a matter of time before what? It's sitting there looking at itself. It's got to make itself clean because what? The nature of a cat is to be clean. And so you can make it dirty for a while, but can the cat happily stay that way? No, the cat will always be sort of cleaning itself out. And then you got the, the hairball will show up a little later, right? We've all had to deal with that. So uh, th- that's what's going on there. Now think of a pig for a second. Okay, and this is actually in the Bible. 2 Timothy 2 uses this illustration to make this point. Uh, a pig, after being washed, right, so you can clean the pig up, you scrub the pig, you get the soap out. Man, this pig is looking good, even smelling good, which is almost impossible. This, this pig is looking great. Okay, you're ready to present this pig. As soon as the pig gets, gets away from you, all right, you've cleaned it up, where does the pig want to go? It wants to jump back in the mud. Second uh, Peter chapter 2 says, the, the pig, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Right? So the idea here is this. Can a pig temporarily look clean? 
Yes. Can a bird or a, a cat or something like that temporarily be dirty? Yes. But their nature is going to show in the long run, isn't it? Their nature is going to come out. So here's what I would ask you. Not just can you grit your teeth and read your Bible. Or can you grit your teeth and try to obey Jesus to some degree. But is there actually, has there actually been, I don't care if you were five years old, people get saved at five, people get saved at 55, people get saved all in between. It, wherever you were, has there, has there been a time in your life where there has been a change of your nature and of your heart in regards to the things of God and the things of Jesus? I'm not just talking Sunday school information. I mean a change of your affections and desires that is a lasting change. Right? The pig can be clean for a while, right? But what happens? It goes back to where it's at home, where its nature is at rest. Have you had a lasting change of nature? Again, not that we never sin. Christians sin. But you know what Christians do when they sin? They repent of sin. They get back up out of the mud. They ask God to clean them, to forgive them, and they want to begin walking again with the Lord. So Hannah, Hannah entered a period where she said, I don't think I really know the Lord. And I think she was right. So what happened was she went through a multi-month struggle. She didn't just pray the prayer like a magic formula. Jesus, come into my heart. Okay, everything's good now. Nothing really changed, but okay, I prayed it, and that's my insurance card. I know I'll never go to hell because I prayed that prayer. Hannah said, that didn't work for me. She said, I didn't do that. What I did was for the next three months, I think it was about a three-month period. It was over Christmas break, so it was like November, December, January. She said, for three months, I started to despair of my sin. And I started to call out to God from my heart, from the depths of who she was. She said... There were nights she would go back to her apartment and she would cry out to the Lord, asking the Lord to change her desires, her heart, her nature. And it didn't happen when she prayed it one time. For some people, it does. But for her, it wasn't a one-time thing. She prayed it over and over for week after week after week, still going to church, still going to small group, but starting to be genuinely afraid that she would die an unbeliever. And finally, after about three months, it was like the clouds parted for her. And like the light came through. And suddenly she was overwhelmed by the love of Christ. And the forgiveness of Christ. She, she has now joined our church. And she is one of the best evangelists. And just a person who brings people to our church of anyone I know. She, she's just incredible. She loves the Lord deeply. And she's a friend also of my wife. And just a great person. But it was a three month battle. Where she was pleading with the Lord to open her eyes. And the Lord did. In his grace his spirit blew on her by the wind of his spirit. And opened her eyes. You remember Matthew chapter 7? In fact, hold your spot. Turn with me just for a moment to Matthew chapter 7 to your left. Matthew chapter 7. My guess is if... uh, you know, maybe you're, you get into the car and, and your parents may say, you know, if you put your seatbelt on or uh, you, there may be something unsafe and your parents warn you about it. Can you make sure you don't do this because you don't want to get hurt? And, and the parents love you. They, if, when you're a little kid, don't get too close to the end of the driveway because there are cars coming, right? Parents will give warnings about terrible things that can happen, not because they want to scare us, but because they want to scare us away from something terrible, right? So is there an appropriate use of fear if you love someone? If someone is heading towards disaster and you say, listen, there is something terrible that could happen if you go that way. Please don't. There's something better over here. So this right here is Jesus giving us something fearful to think about. This, this should create a, a kind of fear that this not happened to any of us in this room. 
Let's read these verses. I'll read, I'll read these uh, for you. Look at Matthew 7, starting in verse 13. And think about what this text is saying. Matthew seven thirteen, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Look at verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can, a, uh, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now here, here's the scariest part to me is verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So stop there. That means there are people who lived in this life calling Jesus Lord, who on the final day will not enter the kingdom. Continuing here. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's turn back to John. But I wanted to say a word about that text. Turn back to John 3. Jesus looks and he says, listen, the way that leads to destruction is larger than the way that leads to life. Many go down that path. And then he says, many will call me Lord, Lord on the last day, but will not be saved. Because why? They're workers of lawlessness. That doesn't have to mean, by the way, that they're criminals or something like that. What he means is their heart was never actually transformed to where they delighted in obeying me and following me. So let's look at John 3 here. Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about these very issues. John 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now just stop there. So who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is the best you can be left to your natural self. Okay, apart from the Holy Spirit, he is the best a human being can be. He, is, he knows his Bible. He's memorized the Bible. He teaches the Bible. He's called the teacher of Israel. This man is a Bible guy. Okay, he, he loves scripture, but not for the right reasons. And his heart has not been renewed. Verse 3, Jesus says to this. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, look at verse 9, because Nicodemus, I'm going to explain this in a minute, but Nicodemus is shocked by what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Like, where are you getting this from, Jesus? I've never heard this before. And then Jesus' response, verse 10, Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Okay, now let's get the big picture. 
Nicodemus goes up to Jesus at night, which I think is, of course, it happened at night, but I think it's also symbolic of him being in spiritual night. He's in spiritual darkness. He, he doesn't know the truth. He comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, no one could do the signs and miracles you're doing unless God is with them. Clearly, you're a rabbi and a teacher from God. And Jesus doesn't say, thank you for that compliment, Nicodemus. He says instead, Nicodemus, if you're not born again, you will not even see the kingdom of God. And now, that, that's shocking because this is the Bible guy. And Jesus says, if, you're, if you haven't had the new birth, the new heart, you, you, have, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus eventually says, How, where are you getting this from? And Jesus says, wait, you're the teacher of Israel. You know what he's supposed to teach them? It's the Old Testament, right? You're the Old Testament professor and you haven't heard about this? You know, I think Jesus, by the way, lots of people think this. I think Jesus is getting this from Ezekiel 36 and 37. Let me tell you why real quick. A little theological footnote here. This is important, okay? So... Jesus says, you're going to get a new birth from the Spirit. And he says, you're born of water and the Spirit. Now, if you go back to Ezekiel, do you see the water that cleanses you at new birth? Remember? I will cleanse you with clean water and you'll be clean of all your idolatry. Is that literal water? Is that baptism that saves you? No, it's referring to the spiritual cleansing of the Holy Spirit when he washes our sins away. Right? Number two, Jesus calls it new birth. Does that sound pretty similar to when Ezekiel said you get a new heart? A whole new person? And then here's the, here's the third thing. Jesus says... How do you get born again? The wind blows where it wishes. Remember the wind metaphor? Now, the word wind, just like in Greek as in Hebrew, the word wind is the same word for spirit in the original language. Does this remind you of Ezekiel 37? Jesus is saying, hey, Nicodemus, if you read your Old Testament, you would have already understood the new birth. No one is born saved. No one. And no one by natural works and effort can become saved. What you need is you need the Holy Spirit to move on you like the valley of dry bones. You need the Spirit to blow on you and to bring life where there was spiritual death. And you need a new birth, a new heart, a new set of affections and desires that will change all that you are and all that you love. Now, it's interesting. Nicodemus is in John 3, and this is the religious guy. If you kind of glance over at John 4, you remember who that, who's, who's the main character there? Jesus and the woman... Of Samaria, the woman at the well. Now let's just put these two characters side by side for a second here, okay? You've got Nicodemus, who's as religious and hardworking as you get. Does he need salvation and the new birth? Yes, despite all his morality, he needs the new birth. And then let's look at the woman at the well. We're not going to read the story, but you know the story. This woman had had five failed marriages. She's now living with a man that she's not married to. And she is sitting there at the well. And Jesus shares with her the living water that only he can give. And you know what she does? She leaves her water jar. She runs back into the city. And she tells the people around her about Jesus. And she's, she becomes a believer. You know, I think Nicodemus becomes a believer too. You know where I get that from? When Jesus dies on the cross, only two people are involved in his burial. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are the two who buried Jesus' body. I think Nicodemus became a believer by the end of the Gospel of John. So here's, here's my point. Who needs the new birth? Really moral people and really immoral people need the new birth. Really religious people and really irreligious people. Sexually promiscuous and immoral people need the new birth and they need forgiveness. And the people who never seem to break a rule but work really, really hard to impress everyone with their morality, they need forgiveness. They need the new birth. Nicodemus and the woman of the well both need the forgiveness and the salvation that Jesus is offering in this story. Let's, let's skip a little further here. John 3. Look with me at John 3 verse 14. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now look at 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus refers here to a story in the book of Numbers. This is the story. The people of of Israel are in the wilderness, and God is feeding them with the manna, and they're getting sick and tired of the manna. They're not trusting God in his goodness. They start to complain. They're complaining about the manna, and this has happened so many times. Finally, the Lord brings down judgment. He sends Serpents. You remember this? Fiery serpents. These are poisonous snakes in the desert that come out and people begin to be bit by these snakes. And people are going to die. Uh, I, knew, I knew a missionary uh, who, in Africa who a couple of years ago was bit by a green mamba. Not the black mamba, but the green mamba, which is not much better than the black mamba. It's one of the most poisonous snakes in the whole world. And I actually saw a picture of him playing with the snake, uh, not knowing it was a green mamba. He was holding it in his hand trying to figure out what it was, and it bit him on the finger. And suddenly, uh, immediately, his body went into really intense reactions. He was starting to have trouble breathing. So the nearest hospital, I think, was was, uh, like over an hour away. And how long it takes to kill you is about that long. And so they threw the missionary in the back of a car. And someone took off driving down these kind of roads that were were, uh, essentially gravel type roads and they took off as fast as they could and he was he was starting to convulse and he was i think maybe like uh, it was a people were worried he was not going to live they got to the hospital just just barely in time to get the antivenom or the, the, the antidote they gave it to him he recovered and he is alive and well today but he came probably within 30 minutes of of actually dying from that snake bite now the people of israel are getting bit by venomous snakes okay and people are on the verge of dying much like that missionary experienced And so the people come to Moses. And they say, Moses, please pray to the Lord. Do something. We've got to be saved. We're going to die. And so Moses goes to the Lord. And he prays. He says, Lord, what should I do? The Lord says, I want you to take an image of one of those snakes. I want you to take a a, a bronze serpent. I want you to make a serpent that looks just like all the other serpents. And I want you to attach it to a pole. And I want you to raise it up on the air. And, And whenever anyone looks, in other words, looks Trusting, looks believing in God, looks to, to that snake on that pole. They look with faith, they'll be healed immediately from the venom of what, ha- of, of, of what they've been bit by. And so that's exactly what happens. Now, Jesus refers to that story right before John 3.16. Look at John 3.14. And Moses lifted, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, I want to share a story from one of my favorite preachers from church history, Charles Spurgeon. He lived over 100 years ago, and his conversion story happened when he was 16 years old. So get this. We're going to have to rewind in our mind. This is January 6, 1850. Okay, we're going way back. And this is what happened in that, in, on that day in England. 
Charles Spurgeon got up and there was an unusually strong snowstorm for the area that Sunday morning. And there was no way he could make the several mile walk to his church on that Sunday morning that he usually made with his dad. So on his way to church, he had to turn down a side street in the town. And he went to a little primitive Methodist chapel, a little church. And he walked inside the church and he sat down. And there were only about 12 to 15 people present in that church on that Sunday morning. And they were waiting for the service to start, but nothing was happening because apparently the pastor had been snowed in and could not make it to church. And so after a period of silence, a, he says a thin-looking man that he had never seen before got up to preach. And this guy clearly was not the pastor and was not ready to preach. He just got up and had to say something. So this thin-looking man, a tailor or a shoemaker of some, of some sort, got up to preach. And this is what he said. At last, a very thin-looking man uh, went up into the pulpit to preach. He said, now it's good for preachers that they be instructed, that they know what they're talking about. But this man was not. He was obliged to stick to his text for the very simple reason that he had very little else to say. And let me give you a little word of background on Spurgeon's story. As a 16-year-old, he had come out of about five years. Now, this is going to sound hard to believe. For about five years, he had known he was not a believer and did not know how to become a Christian. So he went from church to church, and he would talk to people, and he would pray and do all kinds of things, but the, his heart was not changing. He said, fundamentally, my heart was not leaving sin and turning to Jesus. He said, I was about to lose my mind. He said, for five years, I was tormented with the thought of dying and being lost. So finally, on this morning, he walks into this little church, and this man who's not even a trained preacher gets up and says, turn to Isaiah 45, 22. And in the King James Bible, he said, uh, the verse says, look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. So look to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon said there was a glimmer of hope in that text. He said the pastor, did not, this guy did not even pronounce the words the right way. But he said there was a glimmer of hope in that text. And he said the preacher started saying things like this. This is a very simple text. It says look. Now look, looking does not take a great deal of pain. It's not about lifting your foot or your finger. It is simply to look. A man does not need to be going to college or to get an education to learn to look. He doesn't need to be wealthy or rich to learn to look. Even a fool can look. Anyone can look. Then he says, the text says, look unto me. Many of you are looking to other things. He says, look unto me and be ye saved. You'll never find comfort looking in yourselves. And then he said, look unto me. I am sweating drops of blood. Look unto me. I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I am dead and buried. Oh, poor sinner, look to me. Now something unusual happened in the sermon. There's only about 12 people in the room. He said, when he had spoken for about 10 minutes, he looked under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few people present, he knew that I was a stranger. This guy sees the 16-year-old guy there, and he goes, I, I've never seen him before. So he says, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, he said from the pulpit, young man, you look very miserable. Now, that, wouldn't, wouldn't you love that to happen on a Sunday? Uh, you look very miserable. He says, well, I, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, he said it was, a, it was a good blow struck right home. And he continued, you always will be miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not do what my text says. But he says, but if you do, if you believe in this moment, you will be saved. And he said he lifted up his hands and he shouted to Spurgeon, look, look, look. You have nothing to do. But to look and live. Spurgeon says, I saw at once the way of salvation. He said, I don't know what else he said. My mind was so taken by the thought. As, just as when the brazen serpent of Moses was lifted up. And the people looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. 
He said, I was thinking about all these things I needed to do. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost look my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen in that instance and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Now I want to close by saying a few things about Jesus himself and his death for us on the cross. So just think for a second here. Jesus has spent eternity in heaven, worship, praised by angels, and yet because he, we have a God who loves sinners. We have a God who delights in rescuing sinners like us from ourselves. So Jesus came, he left his throne, and soon after he was laid in a feeding trough of animals in the manger, and Jesus grew up working a job that was not well known at the time as essentially a carpenter with his father. He was living in obscurity. No one knew who he was for the first 30 years of his life, really. And then for three years of ministry, he went around loving people well, preaching the truth, doing miracles, things like that. And then this is what happened. Because he spoke the truth, we in our sin hated and despised him. And Jesus ended up going into the garden of Gethsemane on the night before his death. And we are told that it was a cool evening. It was such a cool evening that Roman soldiers had to actually make a fire and gather around it in order to warm themselves up. So it was a colder night that we're probably going to have out here. Okay? It was a cool night. And we're told that Jesus starts to sweat as if great drops of blood in the garden. What is going on with Jesus that makes him sweat great drops of blood in the garden? Well, then he is arrested. And he goes to several really set up false trials through the night. Doesn't sleep. He starts to be lied about. Beaten, hit in the face, spit on by the Jewish Sanhedrin. In the morning, he appears before Pilate. And Pilate has him scourged. He's whipped brutally. Blood is, is pouring down his back. And then they take the uh, crossbeam of the cross and they lay it on Jesus' back. And they tell Jesus to walk to the place of Golgotha, the place of the skull. And Jesus there is nailed to a cross. I, you know, I, I know we know this stuff. We, we hear this a thousand times. We, we, we know this. But, but just think for a second. God incarnate had nails driven through his wrists and through his feet because of our sin. God incarnate loves sinners so much that he was willing to let that happen to him. And then he got hoisted up there like a piece of meat hanging there on the cross, hardly recognizable. He was disfigured beyond human resemblance, Isaiah said. And he's hanging there in agony. And from noon that day until 3 p.m., there is darkness over the land. And during those three hours, something happened that you and I cannot begin to fully understand. During those three hours of darkness, God the Father took his sinless, spotless, righteous son. And he took all the sin of anyone who would ever turn and trust Christ. He took all that sin and he laid it on his son. And Jesus in that moment, he who was pure became pure no more. Because he had our sin credited to him. And God the Father turned the lights out over Gethsemane. God the Father abandoned his son. He turned away. His eyes too holy than to behold iniquity. And his son was a whole massive pile of our sin. And so God the Father averted his gaze, turned his back on God the Son. And in that moment, Jesus bore the full weight and condemnation of the sins that you and I have committed. Now, here's the astonishing thing. Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He dies. It is finished. 
He's buried. Nicodemus is involved. He's buried. And then on that Sunday morning, he rises from the dead. And and here's here's what Jesus says. I, I know that humanity crucified me. I know that their sin is what caused the spit to land on my face. My beard was pulled out. I was hit in the head repeatedly. I was punched and slapped. I was mocked. I was made fun of. I was hung naked on a cross. I was absolutely made a complete spectacle for everyone around me. And and here's what I'll tell you. I still love the humanity that did that to me. And I am willing right now to use that death to open a way of salvation for anyone in the world who will turn from sin and self. And will simply trust with childlike faith in what I have done. Will simply look to me with the eyes of faith and say, Lord, I've been trying to find satisfaction in a hundred other things this year. I'm so distracted from you. I'm so into so many other things. Lord, please get my eyes focused on you. Give me the eyes of faith to truly trust in you and to turn to you. And in that moment, the Lord will say, I will forgive all your sins. All of them, past, present, and future. Even those embarrassing sins that almost no one in your life knows about. I will forgive all of it. I'll take it away. All the shame and disgrace will be buried in my tomb. I left that tomb empty. I'm resurrected. And I will do... Listen. I will right now make this promise to you, Jesus says. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. You're stressed, worn out, and anxious and depressed. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So I want to ask you, where is it that you have been looking to find rest? Where have you been looking to find satisfaction? Where have you been looking to try to find the stability and the identity that you've wanted? If it's not been in Jesus, be honest about that. And here's the deal. The Lord is not going to despise you for that. He will welcome you if you will simply turn in this moment, turn and trust in Christ. Look to him with the eyes of faith. Ask him to open the eyes and to open the heart so that you can embrace him as truly satisfying. And listen, the Lord delights in saving sinners. He delights in showing mercy. It's what he loves to do. It shows his glory and it is for our good. So if you need the mercy of God, he is not stingy in giving his grace. He loves to give his grace to anyone who will simply turn in faith and trust him. And let me just make a comment here. If you're in the group that says, listen, if I'm being honest, I don't think I'm a genuine Christian. I'm sure there are a number in this room. You said, listen, if you were, if I'm being really honest, I know the Sunday school answers, but deep down in my heart, I know Jesus is fundamentally boring and everything else in my life I'm so distracted by. I need my eyes open. Here's what I'd say. You could find someone after this to, to pray with, but you can pray with a friend. You can pray by yourself, but plead with the Lord. Say, Lord, open my eyes and show that you are better than everything else I'm distracted by. And like Hannah in our church, don't stop pleading until the eyes open. Don't stop pleading with the Lord until your heart begins to change. Until that new nature is there that prefers the things of God to the things of this world. The Lord delights to give mercy. Let's take a moment to bow our heads. And I just want you to pray in silence. And then I'll pray and then we're going to sing again. So just take a moment to pray and just speak to the Lord in this moment. Heavenly Father, I pray for 
I'm sure there has to be a number here in this room who are like I was. We know the right answer in our mind, but our heart is far from you. God, if we have been straying from you, and in our, in our affections, we would say, I just don't prefer you to other things. I just don't desire you more than these other things. You're not as satisfying to me as these other things. God, reveal that that is idolatry. That we are worshiping creation over the creator. And that that will enslave us and destroy us. It will not satisfy us. And God, show us the freedom and the joy that comes from releasing the sin and the idol. And fleeing to the cross. Where a God loves us, the God who, who truly loves us, who forgives us, who showers his grace on us, who alone can transform our deepest desires so that by his spirit we prefer you to other things. And God, I pray for the, the believers in this room who truly love you but just recently have been, again, straying in a different direction. I, I pray, God, that you would do a course correction for, for any of us in this room who maybe as true believers have just been straying or bored with you in recent weeks. I pray you'd reawaken a a deep and passionate love for the God who loves sinners at the cost of the life of his son. Help us to be amazed by grace. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. God wants to have this conversation with us. He wants to exchange the righteousness of Jesus, to give that to us and take our sins away from us. God, thank you that you're a God who delights to show mercy. You're a God who is in Christ, gentle and lowly of heart, and you alone can provide rest for our soul. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.